Let me read to you from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. That's what we're doing, isn't it? It's, uh, if you've got a Bible, you, you might like to look it up. Otherwise, just, just listen to what uh, Jesus has to say. He's interpreting the parable of the sower. He says this, uh, verse 13 of Mark 4, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Jesus is preparing his disciples uh, for the response that they and other people will make to the word and it's a sobering parable. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things that I've experienced in ministry and in the Christian life uh, is seeing the initial joy of somebody coming to faith in Christ and then as time goes on seeing that disappear. Worse still, seeing people who would stand up saying, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who one day say, I no longer believe. And we need to recognise that Jesus is saying, people will make all kinds of responses to the word, but some will not see it through. And one of the issues that gets raised here by Jesus himself is the reality of troubles in life. When difficult times come, how will we respond? And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 over the course of the day and I think it has much to say to us about how we should respond when difficult things are happening to us. How can you be prepared for suffering? How can you be prepared for sickness? Perhaps for losing your job, maybe losing a loved one. How can you keep your trust in God in the Lord Jesus Christ, when trouble comes. Well, Romans chapter 8, we're going to dip into it in three parts. And the first part really has to do with our identity. Understanding who we are in Christ is an important foundation for recognising how to keep going when things get tough. Um, Let me tell you, uh, this is a true story of some friends of ours who live here in Canberra uh, they've been married now for over 30 years. On their wedding day, they received, uh, as we all do, lots and lots of gifts. But there was one gift that they were surprised about. They were given a copy of a book by Don Carson called How Long, O Lord? They wondered why they were given that book. I mean, was it a comment on marriage? Uh, when they read that book, it prepared them for suffering. Um, Is that a comment on what they were to expect? Well, they didn't know at the time, but reading through that book in ways that they could never imagined prepared them for things that were to come. They lost a child uh, at about eight months into the pregnancy. Uh, They had a son at 17 diagnosed with cancer. 
they had another boy who was an elite national level athlete who collapsed in a race thinking that he would never be able to do any physical activity again. Was their faith destroyed? No. They've actually grown in their faith. And there is an important perspective that comes from understanding who God is and who we are when we come to him. And I want us to have a look at that in this first session today. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, it helps us to understand the approach to the Christian life. Now, many of you will be familiar with what comes before Romans chapter 8. Um, Any any of you know? It's chapter 7, right? Um, And and in chapter 7, there's all kinds of argument about what's going on. Is, Is this Paul... Um, speaking about the life of the Christian where he doesn't do the things that he knows he should do and he does do the things that he thinks he shouldn't do. Um, The question of whether this is Paul as a Christian or not as a Christian is not really the focus. I want to take you back to Romans 7. Uh, We will get to chapter 8, but Romans 7, uh, verse 5 and verse 6. And I, I want you to listen for the key difference between the two verses. So in Romans 5, let me read, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, some of your Bibles might say sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now verse 6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Um, Now, this is not rhetorical. What are the differences between verse 5 and verse 6? You tell me. One's past and one's present. Yep. So he's addressing Christians. A big change has happened in their life. What else do we see? There's slavery or bondage and there's freedom. What else? Yes, death and life, they're the results of the bondage leading to death, uh, the freedom which is life, yep. More? Yes, the, the old way is the way of law, the new way is the way of spirit. Now, having seen some of those differences, if you were to keep reading through the end of, to the end of chapter 7 you would find reference after reference after reference to the law. You will hear no further mention of spirit. From verse 7 through to the end of chapter 7, the spirit doesn't get mentioned. It's all about the law. And we've already been prepared for the fact in verse 5 that the law cannot lead to life. The law ends up keeping us in bondage which leads to death. But the Spirit, on the other hand, frees us from the old way of the law that leads to life. Now, in chapter 8, from verse 1 onwards, we get this massive release. So it says that, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. What we see 
when we move into chapter 8, is the solution to the problem. And the problem in chapter 7 is that law-keeping is not the way to living the Christian life. Now, we might not think that it was or that it is, but as I talk to people and as I hear the way people describe the Christian life, so often it seems to be the case that they think, if only I can perform better, then I'll get a better outcome. It might be New Year's Eve. I I resolve to read my Bible more this year. I I commit to praying regularly each day. I think, no, I'm I'm not going to be an occasional church attender. I'm going to be regular at that. I'm going to work harder at being Christian. And there's this performance mindset that thinks, if I can just make things happen myself, then there'll be a better outcome. And the Bible's saying, no, law-keeping doesn't do that. It's not the way to work out what it is to live for Jesus. No, there's a new way, and it's the way of the Spirit. And the Spirit's able to do something that we can't do in and of ourselves. If we're left to ourselves, we might have the Ten Commandments and every other law that's in the Old Testament, and we might work our absolute hardest to keep those things, but it will not change our lives. All it will do is point out our failures. Have a look at uh, verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. You see, the law is only able to point out our failures. It's, it's, it doesn't have any power within itself um, to make us right with God. Um, if you want to uh, think of this in, in medical terms, imagine going to a hospital where the, the only people were radiologists and pathologists. Um, they'd be able to give you a wonderful diagnosis as to everything that was wrong with you. But if there were no physicians, if there were no surgeons, they would be able to do nothing to help you get better. The law, you see, points out our failures. It's like holding a mirror up to our life where it tells us again and again and again that our performance just doesn't cut it. And so we need something to release us from that. And here is the joy of knowing that through Christ Jesus, the spirit of life actually brings about change. What the law was unable to do, because it was, it was actually weakened by our own sinfulness, we couldn't measure up to it, the Spirit of God can do in us. And why and how is this the case? Well, it's because Jesus himself has kept fully the righteous requirement of the law. Now, I want you to look at that at, at, at one word here. In verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law. Requirement. Not requirements. It's actually singular. What is the righteous requirement, singular, of the law? Any of you tell me? What did the law require, singular? 
perfection. Absolutely. It required absolute, complete perfection. It required absolute obedience. Otherwise, it points out our failure. And when it points out our failure, the law has another perspective on requirement. What is that? What's the singular requirement of the law for those who fail to keep the law? Death. The judgment of God. Now think about that. If we go the pathway of performance, then we've only got to slip up once to fail to be perfect in keeping the law and we're going to have the despair that the Apostle talks about where I don't do the things that I want to do, where I do the things that I don't want to do, and there is no hope in that. It's just a constant process of failure and frustration. But if Jesus has kept perfectly the law of God and yet has died, not deserving to die, not had to die, but has died to take the righteous requirement of the law for disobedience, then we can enter into a whole new life by the Spirit of God. See, friends, the way to understand the Christian life is not performance. It's not our performance. It's not me doing better. The way to understand the Christian life is the liberation from the law that comes through Jesus and brings us into a whole new realm, a whole new way of life, a whole new way of living that is by the Spirit of God. So what does it mean then to live by the Spirit of God? Well, have a look at the next paragraph there. Verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, you've got these two realms, right? You've got the realm or the kingdom of the flesh... In that realm that is without the Spirit of God, you cannot please God. But if you are brought through Christ into the realm of the Spirit, then you now can please God. But the means to pleasing God in the realm of the Spirit is what? Did you notice the word that I kept emphasizing? What was it? The mind. Again and again, you see it there. The mind set on the flesh. The mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh. The mind governed by the Spirit, and so on. It involves the transformation of the mind. We are to bring our minds into step with the Spirit. The Spirit is to shape our minds. Now, we're not going to unpack this in great detail, but if we were reading Romans faithfully, we'd eventually get to chapter 12 where it would, this, it would talk about, therefore, in the light of all that Christ has done, we're no longer to conform to the things of this world, but we are to be transformed so that our minds are, doing, are, are responding to the will of God and putting it into practice in the way that we live. 
Sometimes people draw a distinction, don't they, between Christians who are into thinking, cerebral Christians, and Christians who are into the Spirit, experiential, free, living Christians. But the Spirit is in the business of transforming minds. It's actually the Spirit of God. And we are called upon here to have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. What does the Spirit desire? Well, the Spirit is the Spirit of God. It's what God desires. That's what the Spirit desires. How can we know what God desires, the Spirit desires? Well, we can listen to God. We can hear Him tell us. We can open the Scriptures where the Word of God, the spirited Word of God, the expired Word of God reveals the mind of God. So, friends, there is a new way... And it is the way of the Spirit, but we need to turn our minds to the way of the Spirit. Now, he goes on in verses 9 to 12 just to talk about how absolutely critical it is that we recognise the the place of the Spirit in our lives. Um, Again, there's often a, a, a distinction that gets made between Let's caricature two groups, the, the, the Pentecostal or charismatic and the evangelical. The, the Pentecostal charismatic will say, we're on about the Spirit of God. You guys aren't, you evangelicals. You don't talk enough about the Spirit of God. In fact, back when I was a teenager, there, there was this false teaching that said you can become a Christian good. Now you need to get the Spirit of God. But listen to this from verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? It is the Spirit of God in us that links us to Christ. In fact, it is the Spirit of Christ who is in us. Notice how many different ways there is in this paragraph to describe the Spirit. Just listen as I read it. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. So you've got Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, the Spirit of God. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. I think you've got about five different descriptions of the Spirit. And the most extraordinary description of the Spirit uh, in this passage is in verse 10. Because he's just spoken about having the Spirit of Christ and now he says in verse 10, if Christ is in you. See, Christ is in us. But how is Christ in us? By His Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Spirit. Because the Spirit is how Christ dwells in us. And because Christ dwells in us by His Spirit, He raises us to life to live in His new realm where he is king. And so the Spirit moves us 
by the transforming of our minds to go the way of the Spirit. That's how we're to live out what it is to be Christian. And that's what we see in verses 12 to 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, deed, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now grasp what's being said here. Without God, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. If we live according to the law, we're trapped. We're in bondage. It leads to death and there's no escape. But in Christ, who meets the righteous requirement of the law, we're actually brought into a whole new realm, the realm of Christ, the realm of the Spirit. And the Spirit now moves us through transforming our minds by the Word of God to go His way. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, if you're directed by the Spirit, if you have your mind set on the things of the Spirit, the idea of being led by the Spirit, I, I, I think is, it's sometimes misunderstood. Um, I, I've heard the idea that you know, you've really got to tune in somehow in a, in a non-biblical, almost mystical way to what the Spirit is saying to you individually and specifically. But each reference, and there's only two, so it's not hard to look them all up, to being led by the Spirit in the New Testament, there's one here and there's one in Galatians, are talking about living out the new life in the new realm. Actually being led by the Spirit is to have the mind of God transforming us so that we can actually please God in the way that we live. And it's saying if we are led by the Spirit, then we have that obligation to actually keep in step with the Spirit, to go the way of the Spirit. And there's a context to this. The context is we've been rescued from the flesh. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We've been rescued from that. So why would you go back to it? Why would you go back to the very way that led to death? Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, imagine that you'd lived all your life uh, eating at Macca's. Right? I mean, it's got all the food groups, hasn't it? Um, you, you, you can get your breakfast, your hot cakes, lashings of maple syrup or pretend maple syrup and butter. And you can get your thick shakes, get your Coke, you can get your fries that have a half-life of about a thousand years. You can, you can get your Big Macs and, and you can even get some healthy stuff um, like cheeseburgers and <laughs> McFeasts, right? You, you've spent your whole life living like this and it catches up with you one day. Um, when you have a heart attack and you're rushed in an ambulance and the doctors manage to save you and uh, they bring you out of the hospital a new person and they say, good luck. What are you going to do? You're going to go back to Macca's? 
You've got an obligation now. Your life has been saved. You've got an obligation now to eat at Subway. <laughs> or somewhere healthy. Right? I think that's kind of what it's saying about the Christian life. You, you live the way of performance, trying to do your best even. Thinking you can turn over a new leaf, thinking that you can resolve your problems, thinking that you can push on and do everything yourself leads to death. And if you are privileged enough to be rescued from death by Jesus meeting the righteous requirement of the law, by being given the Spirit of God to point you in a whole new direction, don't go back to Maccas. Don't go back to the way of the flesh. You can, but it's foolish. And it's an affront to the saving work of Jesus to do that. So the way of the Christian life is not... I will pull up my socks and do the best that I possibly can. It's failure. The way of the Christian life is to live by the Spirit. That's where change takes place. And look, at it's actually grasping a whole new identity because it's not just being brought into a new realm. It's the idea of a realm being a, you know, like a kingdom. It's actually more personal than that. Let's, let's bring it down in these last few verses. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice the key word here? Children. Children of God. Adoption to sonship. Abba, Father, God's children. Now we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's family language that we've got here. We've been set free, we've been adopted, we've, we've been made God's well, I want to say we've been made God's sons. The, the, the NIV um, has kind of shifted some of the language to be acceptable in a, in a modern environment where we, we don't want to just use the masculine, where we want to say sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. But there's something unique in the context here about being a son because the son was the heir. The son would receive what belonged to the father. And so whether you're male or female, you have become a son, you've become an heir. You've become one for whom God is keeping your future safe. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, literally sons of God. And the Spirit doesn't make us slaves again. The Spirit gives us freedom, the freedom that comes by being adopted to sonship. Abba, Father, we can call God. It's, it's not something we should take for granted, friends. We, we've, we've got some close friends who adopted a little boy about 12 years ago. And, and that little boy was facing a particular future uh, in South Africa. And now he's been brought into a new family, a family where he has a mother and a father who are uh, 
a son and a daughter of God. He's, he's loved by his parents. He's cared for. He's raised by. He's taught about God. He's, he's uh, encouraged in the things of God. See, for him, that adoption changed his life completely. And friends, the adoption that we have in Christ Jesus changes our lives completely. It changes everything. And, and we're now called to be like our Father. We're now called to cry out to our Father. And the word for cry here, Abba Father, it's actually um, it's to cry out in the context of, of suffering. To, to call out to God when, when things are difficult. We have access now, not only into this new realm of the Spirit, but into the family where God is our Father. And when life is painful, and when life is difficult, and when there are troubles on, a, on the horizon, when we are, are in despair ourselves, we are called to cry out to God. See, it's, it's a great picture here of, of who we are now in Christ. And we need to know who we are. If we're going to be able to stand firm in the face of trials, if we're going to be not rocked around by the circumstances of life, we need to know who we are. Do you know who you are? It's interesting, isn't it? One of the, the main ways in Australia that, that we identify ourselves is through, through our work. What do you do? Maybe a teacher, maybe a... Um, a, a doctor, maybe a mother, maybe a father. There are all kinds of, of things that we do that so often shape how we see ourselves. But seeing yourself as a, a teacher or a public servant or a, um, a greenskeeper or uh, a mother or a grandmother or a brother or a sister, these are things that will be transitory. These will be things where you don't control who you are. What happens when you're no longer the public servant? What happens when you no longer uh, have that career path? What happens when things change? There's nothing certain, is there, if we define ourselves by what we do. But if we understand that in Christ there is no condemnation, if we understand that, that being in Christ we've been set free from the law of sin and death, if we understand that we've, in Christ the Spirit of God dwells within us, if we grasp the fact that we now have God as our Father, that we can cry out to God as our Father, if we grasp the fact that the Spirit of God actually testifies that we belong to God, nothing can change that. And we'll see that in the end of chapter 8. Nothing can take that away. And so as we face the difficulties and the trials of this life, the, the first thing is to see who we are, where we are, what we've become, where God has placed us. Do you understand your identity in Christ? That's the beginning. See, if we are children, verse 17, then we are heirs. What does that mean? It, it means... Your identity is not just here and now. Your identity is secured for the future. God has something preserved for you. You're an heir, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. But there's a provision. 
if indeed we share in the sufferings of Christ, in order that we may also share in his glory. And we're going to look at that uh, in our next session and the one after. Friends, we've been adopted into the family of God and being a part of the family of God means we're connected with the one who knew suffering intimately and trusted in his Father, Jesus. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you belong? Don't take that for granted, friends. That's taken the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God to make that possible. And don't underestimate what you've got. To have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, to live in the realm of the Spirit, pointing you to the things of God, that's no small thing. And to be told that you're a co-heir with Christ, the one who's going to inherit this universe, to be told that that you are an heir of, of God, that is a wonderful promise. And it's in understanding by the Spirit of God these things that we have the right focus to persevere in the face of suffering. I'm going to leave it there because we're going to pick up on these things um, further. We've, we've stopped at verse 17. We're going to pick it up at verse 17 in the next talk and, uh, and continue to work through this chapter. Um, now understand uh, there's a little bit of time for questions or comments, is that right? Um, what if you don't uh, feel the Spirit within you? Um, I think one of the things that we need to remember is that the Spirit works on our mind. Um, I'm going to go to Romans 12, actually, because we won't pick that up. But uh, just let me take you to the first few verses of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We need our minds to be renewed by the Spirit of God. Um, And our thinking uh, is the the interpreter of what we feel. So that our minds... Uh, shaped by the will of God, help us to understand the, the feelings and experiences and, and previous understandings that, that we've got mixed up within us. We're all thinking, feeling, experiential people. Um, but if we let our, our, our experiences or our feelings uh, take charge in us, then we're open to our own interpretation of what's going on. So I might be part of a, a, a Christian gathering. Uh, I might feel goosebumps. Uh, I, I might be singing uh, with, with, with great joy. I might be celebrating the things of God and I feel good inside. Um, does that mean I, I, I have the Spirit at work in me? I may be 
curled up on the floor in my bedroom in the fetal position sobbing, feeling like God is a million miles away. Does that mean the Spirit is not at work within me? So in these two experiences, which produce two very different types of feelings, I need a mind shaped by the Word of God to help me to understand what's really going on. And if I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God is within me. I need to be reminded of that truth. I need to open up Romans chapter 8 and and verse 9 again, where it says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, and so on. I just need to see that and be reminded that that is the truth. And therefore... When I'm in that fetal position feeling so far from God to recognise that God is in fact right there with me in that occasion. And when I'm in, in extreme joy gathering, celebrating the praises of God, not to think that now God is with me and he wasn't before. Um, that's allowing my feelings and my experiences to take authority in my life rather than the Word of God to shape my understanding of what I'm going through. Is that helpful? There'll be many times when, we, when our feelings contradict the Word of God um, and we need to ask God to help uh, transform our minds so that it aligns our thinking and our feelings. So I'll take you to another place actually Um, I'll I'll just talk about it, I won't take you to it, but in in the Psalms, why are you downcast, O my soul? um, Is that Psalm 42, 43, perhaps, somewhere around there? Um, Read all the Psalms and you'll find it. Um, (laughs) He's like speaking to himself about his miserable state. Uh, And I I think the Psalms are there to help us uh, recognise that while we're emotional feeling beings uh, we need to have the rule of God's word in our life to help us to grapple with these things and there's self-talk going on here not listening to the the feelings of being downcast but being reminded uh, of the wonders of what God has done for him and the the psalmist helps us there I think yeah the um what's the definition of mind um I It's got to do with understanding. Um, It's uh, and it's um, it can be shaped by different things. So in uh, where are we? In verse um, verse five, you can set your mind on what the flesh desires. Um, you can have your minds set on what the Spirit desires. So in that context there, it's, it's, it's your understanding focused in a particular direction. Um, either on the old way, the way of the flesh that led to death, or in the new way, the way of the Spirit that's, that leads to life. Um, you can have your mind governed in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Um, so it, it, it can be shaped and directed by, by external things. Um, 
you can have your mind transformed uh, in chapter 12 that we read out before. Uh, you can have your mind renewed. Um, and then uh, you, he goes on to talk about sober judgment and how you think about things and so on. So I, th- I think it's the seat of our understanding that is shaped um, not just for the sake of knowledge but for the sake of where we head in life. I think that's the context that's being used here. So it, it's kind of like the, the compass, if you like, um, that needs to be set to true north so that you go the right direction and, and not be set to south so you're headed in the wrong direction. Now, I know that breaks down because there's this thing called gravity and all of that and leads the compass, and, but it, it's, it's, where we, it, it's what we understand so that we shape and we go the right way. Um, actually, it doesn't break down because if you've got a map, right, you need to set the compass the right way in order to be able to read the map and head in the right direction. So if our minds aren't set on the right thing, we're going to head off on the map of life in the wrong direction. I hadn't thought of that before, but there, there you go. A compass, that's a, our minds are like a compass. Yeah. 